Good evening. Welcome to Twist, This Week in Sustainability. I'm Felicia Etzkorn, and I'm here with my co-host, Jamie Ferguson. Hi there, Felicia. Today we're going to talk about disinfectants, keeping it clean and green. So our first topic is about UV light and sunlight for as disinfectants. Take it away, Jamie. Okay, so um, you might have, if you listen to This Week in Virology, uh, that's TWIV, it's another podcast, you might have heard David Brenner talking about, um, about using UV light to disinfect, uh, and he was proposing it for um, just screwing into light bulbs in all kinds of public places and uh, workplaces. And so, um, and and so that, that really got me kind of thinking about uh, what I know so far about disinfecting through UV. And um, so at, at the very beginning of the pandemic, there were, um, there were phone disinfectant little modules you could buy on Amazon that were UV disinfectants. Um, and so you'd put your little phone in this chamber and it was like giving your, you know, sending your phone to the um, to the tanning bed, and it would disinfect your phone. But you couldn't do this on a, you know, um, a very big scale. The, the the bigger the chamber, kind of seemed like exponentially more expensive or something. Um, but uh, but that's with that that is with uh, UV light that is probably in the 260 nanometers or so. So let's talk about the different wavelengths of UV light and uh, what we know about them. So there's uh, UVA, which is 315 to 400 nanometers. This is the longest UV light and it's the lowest energy. Uh, then there's UVB, which is 280 to 315 nanometers. Uh, this is kind of medium uh, you know, energy UV light. And UVA and UVB are what we are trying to put on sunscreen and block um, when we go to the beach. UVC is the highest energy uh, UV light, and it's the shortest wavelength, so 20, about 200 to 220, 222 nanometers. Um, and it gets blocked by the, I guess the clouds, it gets blocked by higher parts of the atmosphere. And so, uh, okay. Uh, so so um, I think what's in the 220 to 2 60 range is that part of b or uh the 220 to 280 so to about two so 280 to 315 is uvb so 220 to 280 is uvc that is uvc what what is called far uvc is on the short wavelength end of that and so within uvc is uh, UVC contains a special set of wavelengths um, around 260 nanometers, uh, 265 I think is the, the, the peak wavelength. Um, that's really where, uh, where UV light can most effectively um, damage your DNA, your RNA. Uh, and it causes dimerization of, uh, of the pyrimidine bases and, and so like two guanines would get stapled together and that would then, you know, throw off your 
uh, genetic, uh, you know, reading and transcription and all of that. And so, uh, and so that's, that is germicidal UVC is, you know, around 250 to 280 nanometers. And, uh, and, and it's been used to disinfect, you know, um, operating theaters and other places, particularly places that have a bunch of hard, smooth surfaces. Um, because one thing about, about UV light um, when you're disinfecting with it is the shadowing problem. So anything that doesn't uh, receive those photons of light is not going to get disinfected. And those photons, they can only make it a very shallow way into the material. So if the material is soft, uh, if it's got a lot of, you know, kind of layers of permeability and the virus could have settled into a carpet, you know, the UV light's not going to disinfect a carpet very well. It won't disinfect a carpet as well as it will disinfect, a, you know, a stainless steel table. So, so those, those are kind of the caveats. Um, now, what David Brenner's group was looking at is uh, what we call far UVC. And that is given off by, uh, say, um, what are they? They're, they're noble gases with, uh, I think, potassium bromide. Um, or maybe it's bromine. Anyway, um, these are, these are uh, like neon lamps. Um, that they are, an, they are a, um, a noble gas with, I forget if it's chlorine or potassium chloride. I'll have to look it up. But anyway, these are expensive lamps. Um, how, how narrow is the distribution? Because uh, UV light, just in general, is very broad, right? Yeah. No, this is very narrow. It's um, 207 is, I think it's like a, chlor a chloride salt versus a bromide salt or something like that. And one of them, um, the crystal, you know, gives off 207 and the other one gives off 222. So David Brenner does everything with 222. It's a very narrow, um, you know, a, a very narrow emission. Like a laser. Um, yeah. And those, those very short, uh, those very short wavelengths are, um, they, they don't penetrate into your skin is what he has shown with mice uh, because skin has uh, you know, a layer of dead cells and tears have a, uh, a layer, uh, well, sorry, eyes have a layer of tears and that's enough of a layer to uh, block all of this very short wavelength. It doesn't penetrate into the material being your body um, to do any damage. But it is higher energy wavelengths and, you know, all of our products uh, that surround us, you know, all of our paints, all of our, you know, plastic coatings and, you know, carpets and everything, they've been consumer tested for wear and tear and all of that under visible wavelength light, you know, these are all organic based polymers and they're all going to break down you know, they're all going to be receiving, if you put these lights up everywhere, you know, then A, you're consuming a lot more power possibly. I don't know what the wattage is on those bulbs, but B, 
you know, you don't know how all the stuff is going to break down around you. And, and, uh, so the, um, carbonyl compounds absorb very strongly at 220, um, down below 222. Uh, you know, it's a broad band for the carbonyls, ketones, esters. So these are all functional groups. Carbonyls are a functional group in chemistry, organic chemistry, that have a carbon with a double bond to oxygen. And that group, carbon double bond oxygen, absorbs right in that 220 region. So we talked last week about PET, polyethylene terephthalate, and it has carbonyls in it. A lot of the plastic things in our lives are made out of PET. So I don't know how much damage that would do to be continuously irradiated with 220, but I think you're right. It's I think somebody ought to do a study of, you know, it'd be a GC mass spec study with headspace with continuous radiation of, you know, all of the or even parade of polymers or resin. So what's GC? Gas chromatography. Um, I get so maybe we wouldn't need to do the GC. Sorry, headspace mass spec. So gas chromatography is. any kind of chromatography is a race that you make your chemicals run together. And uh, it's a way of separating uh, compounds. And so gas chromatography is chromatography that happens uh, where the race course is in the gas phase. And um, the stopping points on the race course, uh, those are uh, either liquid phase or uh, maybe a maybe a, a polymer. So either solid or liquid. So what do you think? Do you think 220 is good for disinfection? I think that uh, I like the idea of using a disinfecting chamber for my electronics because I also don't think that all of our electronics have been you know, tested very well with continuous uh, quaternary ammonium surfactants going over them or, you know, or alcohol swabbing. I don't know. Uh, But I've I've tested mine with rubbing alcohol (laughs) many times. I mean, I've done it too, but I probably haven't done it as often as I would if I just knew that that's what, you know, you're supposed to do. It's probably nothing, but, uh, yeah, I think that uh, it's a good idea um, to use it the way that, you know, like uh, to bring bulbs into rooms that need to be disinfected. I think you could use it that way. I don't think that we should install them all uh, everywhere because because the stuff of our lives have not. Yeah, we haven't. We have we're just, we're just being guinea pigs, you know, like we're already worried about 5G and now you want to, you know, oh, it's okay. It's so well, what, what about people who have skin conditions where maybe their layer of dead skin cells is <laughs> thinner than the rest of ours? We don't know. We're just offering ourselves to be guinea pigs. And 
all of our stuff has not, ever, you know, that radiation level, that, that wavelength doesn't naturally make it down here. And so we don't know what we're doing, you know? We might turn the rats into zombies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that wraps up our segment. Oh, do you want to say a word about sunlight? Just for, you know. You should get it. Clothes. You should get it. It's part of, um, it's part of, uh, sunlight is disinfecting and it also uh, is essential in you making vitamin D, which is correlated with less likelihood of going to the hospital with COVID. So we do need sunlight to catalyze the key reaction step to make vitamin, make our own vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. And you can't get that much sunlight at these latitudes after, you know, September 20th, (laughs) thereabouts. So it's, it's too, it's slanted. It's coming in at an angle such that it's going through too much atmosphere to give us enough vitamin, enough to make our vitamin D3. So what about sad lamps? Are they, do they, are they worth their salt? Yeah, I think they're a good idea. Do you think they're, they're powerful enough to, you know, I think you need it to be, if you're sitting right in front of it, Mm-hmm. I did that in grad school. I need to. In Belfast. <laughs> I can imagine. A lot of people did. <laughs> Before I knew that it was a real thing, I, I uh, went to a, a reptile shop and um, because I knew that they, they had those for reptiles and, you know, they were, they kept asking me, well, well, what are you trying to set up for there? <laughs> well, I, uh, well, I haven't quite decided, you know, figured what, what can you give me? And eventually I had to tell him I was looking for a light for myself. And he just fell behind the counter and told me that there were these things called sad lamps. Seasonal effectiveness disorder. That's what they call it. Seasonal affective disorder. Yes. Okay. So now we wrapped up light as a disinfectant and I'm going to, talk about what are referred to as quats. Chemists call them quats. And that's short for quaternary amines. And these are found in disinfectants like Lysol. And, but they're also used on restaurant tables and hair conditioner. So Anything with that ends with monium is a quat. So if you're reading your hair conditioner label and it says cetamonium or something like that, that's probably a quaternary ammonium. And these are salts. They may be ionic liquids. I don't know. Are they? Depends on what the anion is. Ah, okay. So they're long carbon chains. They usually have one benzene or benzyl. (laughs) We won't get into that. But what happens is an amine is like ammonia, 
except with organic chains attached instead of hydrogen. So ammonia is NH3 and amines, organic amines have three organic groups attached. Ammonium is, has four organic groups attached so that it's a and when you say organic groups, Felicia, can you just clarify for people who have taken a second? Those are like gasoline chains, chains of gasoline. So they're, um, they're ca all carbon hydrogen chains and they're very nonpolar. So that means greasy. And so that makes these things have these greasy chains attached to a nitrogen that holds a positive charge on it. When you attach four greasy chains to it, it has to have a positive charge on the nitrogen. Why does it have a positive charge on the nitrogen? Oh boy, we're really going to get chemical here. Um, well, you know, it's just for the listeners. <laughs> okay. So nitrogen is, has seven electrons. If it gives up one, then it's positively charged to be precisely correct. Boy, this gets really hard to try to teach chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It oh, does. Okay. So the point of quaternary ammonium compounds like what we call quats is that this positive charge, so now we got to get into negative charges. So our cell membranes and bacterial cell membranes and viruses that have a lipid coat have what are called phospholipids on them. And phosphates are negatively charged. And I am not going into that. How, how they're negatively charged. They just are. Um, but what that means is that the quad with the positive head and the long greasy tails can is attracted to that negatively charged phosphate. And then the lipid part of a phospholipid is another grease, long greasy, a bunch of long greasy chains. And so the quat can just insert its greasy chains into the lipid membrane and disrupt the membrane. So that's how quats work. Now, there, um, there's a problem with quats and this was just published. I mean, my, there was an article about it published in Chemical and Engineering News where they interviewed my friend and collaborator, Terry Rubeck. And Terry Rubeck is a developmental biologist. And she stumbled on um, a problem with her mice that she was studying their development of neural tube defects. So what is a neural tube defect? It's um, the most severe form of it is when the fetal spinal cord and or brain is open 
the neural tube doesn't close over the spine or the brain and the fetus is, dies. It's either aborted or stillborn. The next most um, serious form of a neural tube defect is spina bifida, which people survive, but it's, um, it's very debilitating. I don't know a lot about spina bifida. And the mildest form is called a cleft palate. And most of us have seen kids, picture, at least pictures of kids with cleft palates, and they can repair those now. So, so it spans an, a range. And Terry was looking at neural tube defects, or NTDs, as she called them, in mice. And all of a sudden, her mice started getting NTDs at very high rates. I think this was in the mid 2010s, the teens, the 20 teens. And she did a lot of sleuthing work and discovered that there was a new um, mouse colony manager, the animal care facility um, personnel changed. And they were spraying the insides of the cages with lab sand, which is like Lysol. It's, it's a quaternary ammonium disinfectant. And the mice were getting neural tube defects at rates of mm. 8%, 20%. And it got even more serious than that when she was like, okay, we're going to not use that anymore at all. We're going to use alcohol, I think. And, you know, she had to move to another building to get away from the quats because they're very sticky. Mm -hmm. They stay on surfaces and they're very right. difficult to re rinse off or remove um, because they have that positive charge and the greasy chain. So, you know, takes a lot of soap and scrubbing and hot water to get them off. Um, I don't know how else you get them off. So her, her mice went, the, the number of neural tube defects, and these experiments each take like four to six weeks because you've got to breed the mice and look at their fetuses and all this. And then, um, but it, it went down, but it didn't go down to zero, which for, for the first 15 years of her career, her control mice had zero NTDs. Mm -hmm. So she was still seeing it. And it wasn't until we set up a, a distilled water um, a still for her so that her mice would have super clean water um, mm. so that she distilled the triply filtered water that they normally use for the mice. And that helped too. But then um, it turned out what was happening was that the mothers were passing on the NTDs to their fetuses and the baby girl fetuses they had to go out two generations before they got rid of these effects from the quats. So 
the problem is that a lot of chemicals that are in common use are generally recognized as safe by the EPA because they've been in use for so long. But that's just because they don't kill people right away. They can cause other problems. We don't know for sure what's causing, you know, whether, whether these quats are causing problems in mothers, human mothers, human babies, or not. But it's, it's a big deal. And I, think, I think it's scary enough that I want to avoid them. Yeah. And I, just the fact that it hasn't been done yet, you know, speaks to some of the problems with the way toxicology works with, uh, with chemicals. You know, the, these are everyday products that have been for generations of you know, of people around the world and, but they got grandfathered in. I think people don't, don't, they, they just assume that everything that is offered, you know, to them to use has been fully tested and you, uh, that's not, that's simply not true. Um, and it's also um, just as a, to play devil's advocate, it's really hard to anticipate all the potential health problems that may arise in a human being's lifetime. And so, you know, they do tests on mice, rats, guinea pigs, and they show, oh, this much kills them. You know, this, this right. idea of a lethal dose 50% this concentration of a chemical fed to rats will kill 50% of them. And they do several concentrations and they kill a bunch of rats that way. But that's just lethality. And we know other toxic substances like lead have neurological effects in children learning disabilities. Um, doesn't kill them, but it, it has a, you know, so there's all these potential effects that you could test for all of them, but we haven't done it. And we haven't thought of everything, you know, Bruce Ames. Hmm? And, and I think people get uh, worried. You can freak yourself out about all the potential carcinogens in your life when you start, you know, looking into everything. But if you just, if you think about, I mean, cancer and why you get cancer and who's going to get cancer at this point, it's still just, you know, it's a, it's a probability random thing that happens. There's not a great correlation. And the thing that we have the best correlation for is smoking. And you all know, you know, your great uncle, Bobby, who, you know, lived to 98 and smoked a pack of however long. I mean, well, this reminds me of when I was working in Kansas City, working with the radioactive carcinogens, and I got a dose of radioactivity, small dose of radioactive water. Uh, it was 10% of an allowable dose, but we had really good EHS, environmental health and safety. Um, they said, you know, they had me 
pee in a cup and measure how much of a dose I got for 24 hours or something. But they sent the um, departmental secretary out on the town with me to drink beer. They said, get at least like five or six beers into her because it's a diuretic and it washes out the radioactivity <laughs> faster. <laughs> so I was sitting there at the bar with Arlene and she, and she was smoking a cigarette and she said, I can't believe you work with all these carcinogens and radioactive. <laughs> and I said, Arlene, I'm far less exposed than you are right now. Than I am right now, just breathing your secondhand smoke. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But that was a long time ago, and we were still learning about cigarettes. We're still learning about cigarettes. We don't even, I mean, we used to make individual compounds that are found in cigarette smoke and test them to see if they were carcinogens. There's a bunch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's many different things when you burn it actually you know same thing goes anyway we're getting way off track here. <laughs> um it, i i will just throw in um a rec a book recommendation if anybody wants to read about you know a, a story that will kind of paint the picture of why it is so difficult to conclusively link an exposure an environmental exposure to uh, something like cancer and how difficult it is to actually prove a cancer cluster. There's a great book that came out recently called Tom's River. It was maybe 2016 or something. Dan Fagan. And um, and yeah, read it. It's great. So an older book about the same topic that was written by a cancer biologist who got cancer um, is called Living Downstream by Sandra Steingraber. And it's, she starts off when she gives a talk and says, my sister got breast cancer. My mother died of, you know, this cancer. My father died of this cancer. My uncle had cancer. My, you know, all my siblings had cancer. I have cancer, but I'm adopted. You might think <laughs> it's hereditary. So she mapped cancers and came up with a geographical correlation that she traced a lot of it to agricultural chemicals and also to dry cleaning. Mm -hmm. so, that's a good book too. All right, so to wrap it up, quats, yes, they work, but we have alternatives. And the questions I have about quats are, still numerous, I, I don't think it's a good idea because they're so persistent in the environment. So instead, I think we should be using alcohols. And Jamie's gonna talk about alcohols. So the way that uh, you've got in your mind a quat um, is it, it's something that we call an amplophile. It's got two different uh, natures to it. It's got a charged end and, a, and an uncharged oily end. And that means that it's a, you know, as a molecule, it's a socialite. It can mix and match with polar and nonpolar stuff. And that's what helps it get the grease off your plates and all of that kind of stuff. Well, so that, um, that charge 
if you imagine not quite so as uh, as pronounced of a charge, you know, you, you can think of a big shock versus a little shock, you know, delivery of a lot of charge versus a little bit of charge. So something that holds less charge on it per atom um, is an alcohol. An alcohol is polar. Um, and so, you know, there's kind of a spectrum of from totally nonpolar, equally shared electron density, no charges on the thing to fully charged. So alcohols are in the middle, quats are on the fully charged end. So alcohols are less powerful uh, in some ways than quaternary ammonium salts are going to be. They're not as, uh, so you'd have to put more of it on to have the same surfactant behavior uh, or ability to dissolve one thing in another. So you probably need to use, you might need to use the alcohol more liberally. Um, that you, you know, the percentage in a quaternary ammonium disinfecting, you know, spray or something like that is a very, very small percentage quaternary ammonium because it is so powerful. So, you know, uh, alcohol is, it, it's going to do basically the same thing. You probably need to put a little more elbow grease in it um, because it's not as powerful. Uh, so what, what I mean by elbow grease is, you know, when you use your hand sanitizer, just like when you, uh, when you wash with soap, both of them, you're supposed to agitate for a long time. So, you know, I would, I would, uh, I, I wouldn't just, I think there's also a concentration effect. So like you said, quats are one, 2% of, or they can be more, they can be 20% for a concentrated solution. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we use more like 70% ethanol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And in the lab, when we're disinfecting for molecular biology, we, we do, um, it's time as well. So it isn't just the agitation. Mm -hmm. It's also the time. So we just spray the bench top with the ethanol and let it sit for 10, yeah. 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So okay. it's concentration and time. Yeah. But, but then the alcohol, you know, a nice thing about it is that once I mean, it evaporates away once it has, uh, you know, deactivated the, the virus, then uh, it evaporates and it's not there anymore. Um, you know, unlike quaternary ammonium salts, which there's going to be a residue there. And th then the next time you disinfect that surface with quaternary ammoniums, you're going to, you know, you could build up a bit of a residue there, especially if it is absorbing into whatever, you know, surface you're on so yeah the alcohol the fact that it evaporates and goes away is is good for not worrying about buildup in your in your environment of course there are vapors well so that that's not uh, that's not particularly healthy for you is that if it if it does evaporate um you know then it's evaporating into the airspace of your house. Um, so, you know, uh, what does a low level exposure of rubbing alcohol, you know, do to you? 
well, acutely gives you a little bit of a headache and nothing else. But if you're disinfecting with that, you know, every day or every two days or something like that, trying to keep a really clean home. I, I noticed that when I use rubbing alcohol to disinfect things early on in the pandemic, basically I was, every time I came out of a store, I was washing down my steering wheel and all the buttons and everything with rubbing alcohol because um, I know that it's a powerful disinfectant and I realized I better crack the windows while I'm driving home because the air was saturated so it can't be good for you. Um, yeah and if you use it too much then then you also begin to extract crack. enough of the the oils out of your hands that you know then your your uh your best barrier against infection is is getting compromised so so did you want to say anything about the difference between ethanol and isopropanol which is rubbing alcohol yes um so if you so so isopropanol is a little bit um is a little bit fatter. It's fattier than uh, ethanol and ethanol is a little bit fattier than methanol. So um, ethanol would be the grease ball on it. It's a little bit bigger than methanol's and that little bit bigger of a grease ball makes it, uh, gives it a, a higher boiling point than methanol. And then so isopropanol would have a higher boiling point again, cause it's bigger. Um, so it's a little bit, uh, it's less volatile. Um, it, uh, so isopropanol is the one that's in your rubbing alcohol. And um, if you were hard pressed in this pandemic to, to make yourself some hand sanitizer, um, you know, it needs to be 70%, uh, somewhere between 60 and 70% um, alcohol. Uh, and so you, if you needed to concentrate alcohol out of your rubbing alcohol, you could add salt to it and stir and stir and stir until you got ice until it, it's what we call salted out um and then you could pour it off and add it to something like aloe vera gel and then you've made your own hand sanitizer in a pinch uh but anybody who tries to just make hand sanitizer from their rubbing alcohol and some kind of gel that's not going to work because it's hmm. going to be too dilute okay um, so rubbing alcohol is 70% isopropanol, but mm -hmm. isopropanol is more toxic than ethanol and methanol, the small one, wood alcohol, we talked about this last time, methanol is even more toxic. So ethanol is the stuff that we drink and, you know, that's alcohol. That's what the students know is alcohol. Um, so ethanol is just right. It's in, it somehow is in the sweet spot where it's not very toxic. And I, Do you think, know why I think that's because of what you were talking about before with the amphiphilic. So methanol has just got, it's too small and it's, it's, um, it's more polar than ethanol. And 
I don't, I don't really understand the toxicity of methanol that as well. But so, I know that the isopropanol, the rubbing alcohol with the bigger greasy part, mm -hmm. it, it's similar to the quats in that it can get into the membranes. It dissolves into the membranes better. It has more grease to it. Um, but it is, it is much more toxic. You don't want to be drinking rubbing alcohol or wood alcohol. No. Uh, so is acetone, is it related to the toxicity of acetone? Because the toxicity of methanol is, is uh, directly related to what methanol makes uh, when your body begins to break it down, which is formaldehyde. And formaldehyde, um, for, for, for methanol, um, you're something called cytochrome C, um, it, it takes a molecule of oxygen and, um, and oxygen can be used as kind of ammo for this enzyme cytochrome C and, you know, shooting, uh, you know, oxygen radicals at things, oxidizing things is one way of beginning to break stuff down. Um, but if you, but oxidizing things can also create molecules that are highly reactive uh, with the stuff of your of your cell structures and formaldehyde is what they use to preserve bodies because formaldehyde kills everything around it um, and formaldehyde is toxic and so methanol makes formaldehyde and if you drink Windex if you just want to end it all and you drink Windex and you go to the hospital they are going to uh, get you drunk. They're going to give you an IV full of ethanol, which I think is hilarious in a black humor sort of way. <laughs> oh no, where have we gone? Um, but it's interesting because ethanol turns into a different aldehyde called acetaldehyde. And that's what gives you a hangover. Right. That's, that's much. the toxic agent in ethanol is what it becomes. And it's the same enzyme that makes formaldehyde as ethanol makes acetaldehyde. And so you flood that, uh, that enzyme with ethanol instead of methanol. And that's what you do as an antidote to methanol poisoning. Interesting. Okay. That's the alcohols. Last word on alcohol. As a, as a disinfectant? Uh, as a disinfectant. Um, I'm for it because another reason I'm for it is because you can get alcohol, uh, lots of different alcohols from uh, renewable resources. So uh, you can, you can, you know, derive ethanol from, we certainly know corn, but also any other plant-based, you know, materials you can get ethanol from. So potatoes make vodka. Yeah. Grain alcohol from grain. Great. I agree. Good green chemistry there. Yeah. Humans know how to get ethanol from stuff. Think about how many different kinds of liquors you've heard of in your life. They, lots of things make ethanol. All right. So now we'll move on to um, the chlorine disinfectants. Bleach. Um, 
and things like chloramine. So bleach is a small inorganic compound called sodium hypochlorite, which is a long word for sodium plus oxygen plus chlorine. It's a really simple molecule, three atoms, sodium, oxygen, chlorine. And it has um, reactive oxygen, chlorine, negatively charged part of this. It's a salt. Sodium is positively charged and oxychloride is negatively charged. Okay. And that is not a very stable situation because oxygen and chlorine are both, it's like a tug of war for the electrons that they share. They have the same propensity to pull the electrons toward them, what chemists call electronegativity. And so oxygen and chlorine fighting over this makes them break up, makes them react with other things, bring in a third party to try to stabilize it. So it basically bleach or the, the oxychloride is reactive and it reacts with any organic compounds. Um, interestingly though, not the plastic jug that it comes in and I was gonna go look, but I'm pretty sure it's high density polyethylene that mm. is the jug that bleach mm -hmm. comes in. And it has to be diluted. It's not stable by itself as a solid and it'll explode, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So it comes as a solution and it's a pretty concentrated solution. So when you're using it as a disinfectant, you do want to dilute it properly. So whatever it calls for a quarter cup in a gallon of water, I think I, I think I use a tablespoon in a, in two quarts, mm. something like that. Um, and you also don't want to store it with soap and bleach in the same water. So it'll become ineffective. It'll react with the soap actually. Um, so you can, you can dilute it and it'll stay active for a while and you can put it in a spray bottle, um, but it will destroy dyes. We know this <laughs> from bleaching your clothes or, you know, you, you can, it'll destroy all kinds of organic molecules. Um, it's interesting that cotton is so stable that cellulose is so stable that it doesn't break up the cellulose um, very easily. It will if you leave it on there long enough um, or if it's concentrated enough. Um, but after you, you, you spray a surface, maybe your kitchen counter with dilute bleach, and if you let it sit there for a little bit, that will disinfect it and it will decompose into sodium chloride and water. Um, you can smell it. That smell means it's not good for you to be breathing high concentrations of it. So ventilation, I think the same thing applies for the alcohols. You should. Yeah, but 
one word of caution about alcohols and about chemicals in general is that just because you can't smell it doesn't mean that it's not there. Um, well, bleach so, is one of those you should have the ventilation. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think people, because um, we talked about methanol and, uh, you know, different people come in contact with methanol as race car fuel or, you know, other things it gets used for and they don't, it doesn't have a smell. Um, that doesn't mean you're not being exposed. It just doesn't, uh, you know, react with a smell receptor in your nose the way that, you know, these other alcohols do. You know, you know that ethanol and, and isopropyl alcohol, rubbing alcohol don't smell the same. So, you know, those are molecules bonding differently. And you're, so, you know, methanol just doesn't smell like anything. So bleach is not too bad when it reacts with something it turns into sodium chloride, which is table salt. I forgot to mention that table salt. So the byproduct of bleach is not too bad. Although as a caveat, we bleach all our paper, even those brown paper bags that you get from the grocery store have been bleached. Otherwise they'd be really dark brown. And the bleach that they use um, for paper making tends to make small quantities of dioxin. And dioxin, most people, I don't know if this generation knows, but dioxin has been categorized as one of the most potent toxins known to mankind. Um, it's bad stuff. It's a chlorinated aromatic compound. Aromatic doesn't mean what you, well, it does mean what you think it means. It means it has a pleasant smell, but to a chemist, aromatic means um, it has these very stable arrangements of carbon. And the most well-known is benzene, which is six carbons in a ring. And so when you put chlorine onto an aromatic ring, it's a very stable, very hard to break those carbon chlorine bonds. They're very strong. And so dioxins are not biodegradable. They're what we call POPs, persistent organic pollutants. And so bleach can be a, a mixed bag. I do use it, but sparingly because it's, you know, you do make, you can make dioxins from that. Jamie, you're looking something up. I'm wondering what the mechanism of dioxin toxicity is. I get confused about compounds that are persistent and so not very biodegradable but then their mechanisms of toxic action like in the environment they are chemically inert enough that they hang out but then when they get in some system in you they come alive when they fit in the right things so you know um well, can you talk about how dioxin is is toxic do you know i know that it's an endocrine disruptor 
Now, what's endocrine? Endocrine is our hormone system. I think it might mimic steroid hormones. Does it tell you? No, it's not in mechanistic toxicology. That, that does have some good um, hmm. xeno. That looks like a good book. I should have that one. It's okay. I'll let you borrow it. <laughs> um, but our steroid hormones need only teeny tiny concentrations to have an effect on our biology. So if male species of the species like male toads, frogs get contaminated with um, endocrine disruptors, then they can turn into females um, because it doesn't take much of something that looks like estrogen to affect. And it, it's, it's, binds to a transcription factor protein that um, induces transcription to cause, you know, estrogen causes feminization. And then men have things that turn estrogen into androgens, but they can get, they have enzymes that can turn estrogen into androgens and the but those enzymes can get swamped out if you have high concentrations and exposure at that concentration in what in what way causes what effect i'm I'm curious because it seems like i'm not a toxicologist but i do know that dioxin can be an endocrine disruptor but it can also at high levels, it causes something called chloracne, which, you know, little pustules break out all over your skin. It's like you have a bunch of burns. Um, so it's, I, I don't know the mechanism of how it kills you or how it makes you really sick with chloracne, but it is very toxic very low levels are needed to kill you. So bleach is a mixed bag. Bleaching wood products is bad because there's a lot of lignin in wood that gives its structural stability. And lignin is a lot of aromatic compounds. So when you bleach, you're trying to get rid of the lignin. And in the process of bleaching, the lignin out, you're creating aromatic chlorine compounds like dioxins and they're not good. So, Mm -hmm. so bleaching wood is bad. So you don't want to use it on your wood products in your house. I don't use it on my cutting boards. Um, Lignin has its own antimicrobial effect. So I've, I've actually um, seen somewhere that wood is less susceptible to contamination than plastic cutting boards. Plastic cutting mm-hmm. boards, if you use a cutting board and you get those little grooves in it from cutting on it, those grooves get microbes in them and it's hard to get them out. 
Whereas wood, um, wood itself is antimicrobial. Hmm. I guess. Trees have to fight back somehow. Yeah. They've got those aromatic rings that maybe catch light and maybe can create a. Well, and there's phenols, a lot of, of a lot of phenol. Reactive oxygen species in their polymer. Like maybe. I, I think I think it's also the phenols. So phenols are um, like alcohols attached to an aromatic ring. So we mm. talked about alcohols. Um, okay, so that's bleach. Um, by the way, swimming pool chlorine is a similar salt. It's calcium oxychloride or hypochlorite. And so swimming pools, when you smell that chlorine, it's the same that you're smelling the bleach. You're smelling the same thing as you smell when you use bleach at home. And then I also wanted to talk about um, sanitizing water because this um, relates again to the project that I had with Terry Ruback in that we looked into um, disinfection byproducts in water, in our drinking water, as a potential cause of this sudden increase in neural tube defects that she saw. And so we actually visited the New River, um, the, the Virginia Tech, Montgomery, or no, I think it was Christiansburg, Blacksburg, Virginia Tech Water Authority or something like that, where they sanitize the water out of the New River and put it into our pipes for our houses. And they have a multi-step process where they take in the river water and filter out the big branches and leaves. Um, and then they let it sit for a while with chlorine. Well, probably that is calcium oxychloride, the swimming pool chlorine, not Cl2, um, which would, wouldn't be very effective because it's a gas. Um, so it's actually hypochlorite. Um, and after it sits with chlorine, then it goes through a gravel filter and then it goes through a sand filter and a finer sand filter. And then as they're releasing it, the, they, add, they just started this in 2006. They add ammonia at that point. And the whole point was to make sure that you were disinfecting the water all the way through the distribution system. Because what happens when you add ammonia to a solution of essentially bleach, um, you make a compound called chloramine, which is a chlorine attached to a nitrogen. And, and we want to emphasize that this is a don't try this at home, folks. Do not do this. Yeah, this is like... Even though you've got a bleach bottle and you've got... Ammonia. Ammonia. Because chloramine, chloramine in high concentrations will kill you. It, it, and it's fairly volatile. So I don't like the fact that they started using ammonia and creating chloramine. 
Um, it's at very, very low concentrations, but I think, okay, I have, I have a, a swag, a scientific wild ass guess about what is going on in my house anyway. Um, the chloramine seems to be killing all the bacteria, good, bad, and otherwise in our pipes. And it, there's nothing to compete with the black mold. And so the black mold takes over and it seems to grow in every drain. I mean, I've had to take my drains apart and clean out just gobs of black mold. Um, and is, is this a, a, have you asked your neighbors? Is this a neighborhood? I have trend? talked to other people in the community, not my neighbors, but my colleagues. And I think this is a thing. And when I've talked to the water experts who know about disinfection in civil and environmental engineering, they're like, I'm not a fungus expert. I don't know, you know, and yeah. I don't study that. I think I've seen a paper on that, but I don't know anything about it. So we should be writing these things down. These are PhD theses, you know, studying. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is fungal species with, with chloramine low level. I mean, so they don't do this in Europe. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you were saying. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we could explain the, theoretically why that is, that fungi are uh, the colonizers of the most extreme environments and can hang out in, you know, otherwise really unlivable environments. And it's because fungi um, uh, produce secondary metabolites, which uh, are small molecules that they shoot out of their cell walls into the environment around their cells that have they have all kinds of um they, they are the master uh builders of of a variety of small molecule structures the, and they and, communicate and so, with each other so that they could yeah and and so they shoot out they, they shoot out love letters to each other all over the place too they're they're you know they are really great at making molecules not just for their own uh structure or uh it, or eating, chewing them up as energy, you know, that they did, make Did you molecules. read the overstory mm -mm. by Richard Powers that won the Pulitzer Prize? I think, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize. Talked a lot about chem chemical messengers. So what would a, what would a fungus uh, produce that would neutralize a chloramine? I haven't got a clue. Me neither. But apparently they are impervious, I, I think, to chloramine. And the bacteria, yeah, they're gone. But fungi are not good for you either, I don't think. Um, well, some people like them. Moldy, stinky cheeses. Okay, but we got to move on. Um, Jamie's going to talk a little bit about oxygen and hydrogen peroxide. And as a transition, I just want to say that um, Europe stopped doing chlorination of water 
sanit doing water sanitization with chlorine and a long time ago. And I think that's really smart. We jumped into this idea that, oh, let's just add ammonia to our chlorinated water. And we don't have any clue as to what that's going to do to people. I don't think they've been testing it. So I'm, I'm not a big fan. Okay, so oxygen and hydrogen peroxide are good ways to sanitize things. So there was a, a green chemist, I think he was at um, Terrence Collins. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so bleach uses, uh, a, a, utilizes something we call oxidation. Uh, it's an oxidant, oxidative degradation. That's, that's what your body also begins to do with, um, with toxins is they, you're, you know, cytochrome, you know, oxidizes, uh, the chemical and, and then it begins to break down. And so, you know, you can also, uh, apply an oxidant and it will begin to, uh, chemically break down things that are made out of carbon, uh, that are carbon based. So, uh, oxidants are a class of disinfectants. Another common oxidant that you will have heard of is hydrogen peroxide. And that's the stuff that bubbles, uh, when you pour it on a cut, um, and so when it's bubbling, it is, uh, it is chemically breaking down that hydrogen peroxide to, um, to it forms water and, and oxygen gas and um, OH radicals. OH radicals. Uh, so it's breaking down eventually, uh, it forms OH radicals. It's got several ways that it can break down, but one way that it breaks down is, you know, um, Hydrogen peroxide is HOOH, all with single bonds in between. And so if they just, if that central OO bond just split directly in half, um, you've got two radical species. And those radicals, um, chlorine, uh, bleach, sodium hypochlorite also creates radicals. Um, and so they, they have a similar mechanism of how they break stuff down and so therefore how they disinfect um, but the the byproducts of uh, of hydrogen peroxide are just water and um, and oxygen uh, so so hydrogen peroxide is more um, is, is is it has a smaller environmental footprint um, compared to bleach um, and so, but it's not as, it's not as aggressive of an oxidant um, as bleach is. And so you need to add some magic, uh, you know, uh, second ingredient, which we're going to call a catalyst, which um, a catalyst just makes something that is sluggish to react a lot more readily reacted. Um, and so uh, Terrence Collins came up with an with a catalyst that's based on iron um, and that's great because iron is uh, very abundant right and and pretty non-toxic uh, and so 
this iron catalyst uh, then allows that hydrogen peroxide to be a powerful enough disinfectant that you can um, that you can bleach wood with it. That's a powerful enough oxidant combination that you can do a lot with it that uh, you otherwise, you know, business as usual chemistry would have been using bleach. And so since there's no chlorine in that system, in this iron and peroxide based system, uh, then you don't form the dioxins. And so you also create a cleaner product. Yeah. And then oxygen itself can be used with Collins catalysts and um, oxygen itself is a, a stable di radical. It has one unpaired electron on one oxygen, one unpaired electron on the other oxygen, making it more reactive. And so that's why there's this whole dietary move towards antioxidants in your food. Um, you want to tone down the reactivity of the oxygen. If you get too much oxygen in your system, it can actually be bad for you. So when they say you're 98% O2 and you're healthy, that's 98% of some arbitrary concentration that is ideal for humans. It doesn't mean that you're 98% oxygen <laughs> in your body. Um, so, or in your blood. And okay. it doesn't mean 98% saturated. It might. I think it might mean that your hemoglobin is 98% saturated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what. And so, but if you have too much oxygen, so what is oxygen in the air? It's only about 20%. Is it 20%? Mm -hmm. I do know that um, back when my aunt was born, she was premature by about five weeks or something. And this was in the 40s. And so it was a very um, experimental thing to try to keep a baby alive that was born prematurely and they gave him 100% oxygen and all of those babies grew up to be functionally blind legally blind wow. because the oxygen damaged their retinas so there's you know oxygen of course we need it to make all the molecules that we need to live um, and to give us energy to live, but it's also reactive and can cause bad things to happen inside our cells. So it's, it's kind of the, the middle way, the Buddhist middle way, you have to have enough oxygen, but not too much. So oxygen can be used as a bleach um, with this iron catalyst. Too. Okay, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Okay. And then one more form of oxygen is ozone. And ozone is important to have in the stratosphere because it blocks the UV light. So we're coming full circle here. Um, and back when I was early in my career, there was a big ozone hole 
over the Antarctic and the Arctic to a certain extent. And that ozone hole um, made too much UV light come through and it was causing um, a lot of skin cancer. And little kids in Australia all wore hats. They all wore hats with flaps that went over their necks um, to play outside. And this is because it let in the 365 nanometer UVC light, <laughs> which damages the DNA. Right. So, yeah. So ozone absorbs that and protects us on Earth. So we want to, oh, and what's destroying the ozone? Refrigerants. Refrigerants, right. Hairspray cans. Well, they don't use those anymore, do they? I don't know what they use I don't as think propellants. You can buy chlorofluorocarbons as propellants anymore. They, there are refrigerants. So now they use hydrofluorocarbons. And they thought, oh, those don't destroy the ozone layer. But it turns but they're out they're terrible greenhouse gas uh, <laughs> yes. absorbers. Yes. So uh, it's not one thing, it's another. Mm. those pesky chemicals figure out how to do it with water <laughs> yeah that would be nice um, but ozone can be used oh also ozone is a ground level pollutant and it's not good for you to breathe too much of it but the hot tub manufacturers offer an ozonated um, water instead of chlorine bleach, which I actually prefer. I think it's less toxic than the swimming pool chlorine that you have to put in hot tubs. And it does a really yeah. good job of keeping my hot tub um, disinfected because I can leave water in there and not use any other chemical yeah. um, so disinfectants. These are, these are other ways that you can, you know, explore disinfecting your, your masks during times of COVID because, um, you know, there's, there are papers out there about, um, about using hydrogen peroxide, uh, you know, aqueous solution and, and microwaving a mug of it, you know, with your mask <laughs> over that, because yeah, you've got, you've got, free radical oxidation going on. Um, so, so that's kind of like an arc. That's a, that's a theme we've got today is that when you oxidize organic compounds, you create, uh, you, you, you degrade, you begin to degrade things and you can also make more toxic things. So finally, um, I wanted to talk about something that is good to kill fungus is grapefruit seed extract. And there's a hundred papers about grapefruit seed extract in PubMed and 200 in the chemical literature um, about grapefruit seed extract as a disinfectant. And it turns out that it is composed of, um, let's get this right. I'm gonna have to, read this. 
Grapefruit seed extract comprises ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. We've mentioned that already. Something called naringin or naringin, naringin, N-A-R-I-N-G-I-N at 0.1 to 2 weight percent. Citral, which sounds like the aldehyde of citric acid. I didn't look it up. Tocopherol, which is vitamin E, and palmitic acid, which is a part of palm oil. And I'll just leave that. But I'll come back to naringin because I looked up the structure. It's very interesting. It's, it's chromine. It's a chromine. And it has these phen phenol groups, which are the aromatic alcohols I mentioned earlier. And it also has two sugar molecules attached to it. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, it is able to kill over 800 bacteria and viruses at low levels. You don't need a high concentration of grapefruit seed extract to disinfect effectively. So if you can find a natural disinfectant product that has, you know, that they, they make them with the right concentrations, that would be a, a, a greener way, a green chemistry way to do your disinfecting and also um, kill the, <laughs> the fungus that grows in my drain. So I need to add a couple of drops of grapefruit seed extract every night. That's interesting. I mean, I guess it bonds with receptors that are, you know, uh, that I was just looking at the structure of vancomycin um, because they, they improved the synthesis of this, you know, vancomycin is the, the best in the arsenal of, of the hospital today. If you get a really, really resistant bug and this is what it, it's got a, a, a bunch of cycles on it, but it's got this little tag that's a glycoside that, you know, uh, has these two sugar rings on it, just like this one does. And I think that's one way that it, you know, gets into the cell, right? Is Well, vancomycin actually works by blocking um, cell wall biosynthesis, because it has this very um, specifically oriented piece that binds to diala diala, which are two amino acids that make up this bacterial cell wall. And I actually worked on this for my postdoc. <laughs> um, and vancomycin, but there, even back in 1990, 91, 92, there were vancomycin resistant bacteria in the hospitals in Boston. And that's why we were working on how does it work. Okay, so I looked at the structure of vancomycin and the sugars are similar to the sugar rings on naringin. And so both of them have this disaccharide, that's two sugar rings. And it's possible that that's part of the recognition element for blocking cell wall biosynthesis. And so you might be right that, that the um, 
inhibition partly recognizes the sugar. Because I thought that the, the the disaccharide thing on vancomycin looked like a, and I don't have memorized what a peptidoglycan looks like well enough, but I know that it's part sugar and it's part peptide, and this is a you know sugar with some amine in it, and so. I wondered if it was because an enzyme starts to try to incorporate this molecule into and it blocks you know, that enzyme. Uh, yeah, like a carbohydrate it's an inhibitor. outside. It is an yeah. inhibitor of that yeah. cell wall biosynthesis. Yeah. But I think okay, so back to naringin in grapefruit seed extract. It is um it's got two phenol groups on it. And phenols are these aromatic alcohols. But to get a little historical, one of the earliest disinfectants was something called carbolic acid. And carbolic acid is phenol. Okay. And so I think phenol is a potent disinfectant. So the acidity of this alcohol is much stronger than ethanol or isopropanol that we've already talked about. So it's, it's a strange beast. Carbolic hmm. acid. I think that's probably part of what makes it um, a disinfectant, but it could, it could inhibit enzymes that are in bacteria I don't know what it does. I, I'm sure it's out there, but it wasn't easy to find for today's episode. <laughs> hmm. So I think it's time for us to wrap it up. And I'm going to ask Jamie to close with the same words she closed with last time because... I thought, I think this is a theme, I think. Yeah. So in conclusion, I still believe that we should all just think about it and don't think too much, <laughs> but think about it. All right. So this has been Twist, uh, second episode keeping it clean and green. Our music was written and performed by Wendy Godley. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, we'll say goodbye now. Goodbye, Jamie. Good night. Good night, Felicia. This was fun. Um.